Hello and welcome back to another episode of Iconic Test Series Podcast. In this episode, we will look at the 1976 Test Match Series between the West Indies and England. During the early 1970s, the England Test team experienced a successful period of Ashes victories. They won the 1970-71 series and held on to the year in 1972. However, two consecutive Ashes series losses and a disappointing 1975 World Cup performance led to concerns about the ageing team. As for the West Indies, they won the inaugural 1975 World Cup, but soon after were thrashed 5-1 in their Test Series visit to Australia during the winter of 1975-76 and were in particular troubled by fast bowling duo Dennis Lilly and Jeff Thompson. This called for a rethink in the West Indies camp and the team transformed to focus on an all-fast bowling unit. This was first implemented in the 1976 series against India where they won 2-1. Joining me to discuss the series is Richard Thompson. Richard is a professor and head of media and communications at Swansea University, a member of the MCC, as well as the author of Cricketing Lives, a book which looks at the history of cricket through some of its most colourful characters. This is Iconic Test Series. So Richard, um, I just wanted to start with the uh, build-up to the West Indies-England series of 1976 and look how basically the West Indies team form. Obviously, uh, in the winter before, uh, they played Australia, but unfortunately they lost the six-match uh, series 5-1. And in particular, they really struggled against uh, Dennis Lilly and Jeff Thompson. How much do you reckon that was an influence in the future of uh, West Indies, especially picking their seamer attack that series? Um, well, obviously had some impact on it because, you know, the um, pace was very much the potent weapon of the time because obviously West Indies were um, the latest in a long line of international size to go to Australia and suffer as a consequence. Um, England had done so, India had done so. Um, nobody really had any answers against the relentlessness uh, of the pace attack and also it's potency so clearly um that had that 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 was a big part of shaping the strategy but but also i think it's fair to say that um west indies cricket was sort of reshaping itself anyway a bit uh then they came over here as, as you rightly say in 1976 the previous time they'd been uh, to england for a test series is in 1973 um and of course they had Gary Sobers in the team. They had Rowan Canai in the team. Um, you know, they pretty well swept England away. Um, make, you know, Gary Sobers got a very famous 150 at Lords, which is pretty well the end of Raymond Illingworth's reign as England captain. So um, when they uh, came back in 1976, which is only a small gap, isn't it? Three years between Test series, they had neither of those two in the, in the, in the squad. So. There was a bit of a shuffling of the decks anyway. Um, and we'd sort of seen a bit of what uh, West Indies were about because, of course, they'd spent the previous summer in England anyway because they'd won the inaugural World Cup. So we kind of knew that they were an exciting team to watch, that they were full of 
sort of some real superstars, really, potential superstars. So while we were sort of anticipating it, and obviously the Australian result was was part of it, um, I think I was probably, and I was only young at the time, but I think I was probably like lots of other cricket fans by thinking, well, that's Australia, you know, this is... This is um, England in, you know, the boggy um, recesses of May and late April and on, you know, wet wickets. And, you know, it, this is going to be a different game of cricket. So, um, or so we thought, of course, because that's what we expect to happen in April and May. Um, but it wasn't like that in 1976. Um, this whole test series against the West Indies was played against... Um, an amazing backdrop, social backdrop, if you like, of um, a heat wave. I mean, not just a heat wave, the the hottest heat wave. Um, you know, I remember one of my memories of that summer was queuing, um, queuing at the end of our street with some water containers to get water. You know, there was a stop tap at the end of the street. There were, you know, people were frying eggs on the pavement. Um, you weren't allowed to water your garden, wash your car. Um, you were being encouraged to, if you had a shower, and not many people did in the mid-70s, um, to use a shower rather than a bath because it used less water. Um, I think even the BBC suggested that you bathe with a friend, which was um, probably a step too far for most people. But um, So all of this was played against um, a really dry, arid summer which, of course, in its own way, sort of reproduced those uh, conditions that the West Indies had just done so well in uh, a few months previously. So, I mean, it was set up. I think there was justifiable excitement because, you know, we knew that there was some kind of new West Indian players coming. We didn't quite know who they they were and who they were, what they were capable of, although we found that out pretty soon. Um and of course, the whole thing was given considerable pickancy um, by the comments of Tony Gregg, who, you know, at the at the best of times was was a bit of a Marmite England captain in terms of, you know, there were people he thought he was brilliant, people who um who who were rather thinking he was a bit too brash and a bit too loud to become England England captain. And of course, it wasn't too long before he sort of ripped cricket apart by becoming part of Kerry Packer's World Series cricket. But he, at the time, he was still the England captain. Uh, he was fearless. He was attacking. He definitely did not shy away from a fight, but made a particularly unfortunate comment in an early season interview on camera. I remember watching it and even as a young kid thinking, oh, uh, that jolted a bit, um, particularly coming from a white South African um, describing how he was going to make the West Indies grovel. It was a very, very unfortunate turn of phrase. I, I suspect he definitely didn't mean it in the way that most people kind of took it. Um, but you can imagine it, it, it was, you know, it was going to get pinned up on the West Indies um, dressing room wall. And if those guys needed any encouragement to bowl that a little bit faster, there, there it was. So um, that sort of set it up even more. It sort of added an edge to the series before it even started. Um, and there we go. That's that's how it all began, I guess. People are building these West Indians up. I'm not really quite sure that they're as good as everyone thinks they are. If they're down, they grovel. 
and I intend, with the help of Klaasi and a few others, to make them grovel. Yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, someone that came to the forefront um, in that series early on was Viv Richards in the, in West Indies' first innings. He got um, a 232. Um, obviously, he's got, I think he scored 500s before that, but he'd never um he never scored a test century in england and i from from my understanding wasn't a, wasn't too prolific at the 1975 world cup was this was this a real kind of flagship moment where from an england's fans journalist point of view to think all oh, this this team's this team's serious viv richards is the best could possibly be one of the best batsmen in the world and the team that we're facing could be one of the best batsmen in the world um well, I mean, we, we did know about Viv Richards. Um, he, he was, he, he, I think he'd already signed for Somerset by then. Um, we'd seen him in the World Cup, but he'd not he'd not been one of the standout West Indian players in the World Cup. Um, I mean, his 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 most star star starder moment, if you like, for want of a better expression, was in the was in the final when he when he ran out three of the Australian batsman in that world cup final that one that sort of ended about nine o'clock at night in complete chaos um so kind of we knew what he what he could do in the field but nobody had ever quite understood um maybe the hype and perhaps it was hype at that stage uh, of what he could do with the bat and then suddenly he um in the first test at trent bridge he scored 200 now i mean i remember as a kid with a pretty deep love of cricket even perhaps deeper then than it even is now um i remember scoring i used to keep a little score book that i used to actually watch the television because of course in those days it was uh free it was on terrestrial tv it was on the bbc um so i used to see every ball on the bbc so i actually used to spend the sort of school holidays when everybody saw was outside in this brilliant blistering heat I used to be inside my little kind of junior score book, scoring every ball. And, you know, it was the first time, and I've been doing that for quite a while. It was the first time I ever remember having to sort of sellotape extra little sections in to accommodate, you know, somebody scoring so many runs. Um, so it was it was pretty special. I think it took everybody by surprise. I, I mean, not least because in those days, you know, the technology of wicket maintenance, the equipment, the bats, and so on and so forth were not what they are now. And so a double turn in a in a test match was quite a big deal. You didn't see them every day. So um that was that was really notable. But I think much as he took the headlines and he, he got 829 runs in that series, um we forget sometimes, I think, that that there were some pretty strong supporting actors uh there as well. I mean if you look at the two opening batsmen in that West Indies team who, you know, if it wasn't for Viv Richards, would have been, you know, the superstars of that series. Um, Gordon Greenwich, of course, you know, um, always sort of famous for sort of batting on one leg, you know, but it always seemed to be England when it, whenever he was doing that. He got almost 600 runs in that series and his opening partner, um, Roy Fredericks, who as a Glamorgan fan, we knew very well because he'd been our overseas international for a while, real kind of flamboyant, um, left-hander you know real kind of went for it um he got over 500 runs in that series as well and that's not mentioning people like Clive Lloyd of course um and then some sort of bit part actors who sort of flew in and out so um yeah I mean 
Richards took the headlines, but he was he was supported extremely well by some of his other teammates. And of course, what they all loved was they were playing on hard, fast wickets that very much replicated what they were used to in you know in the Caribbean. So for them, it was it was the perfect um, it, it it was the perfect setup. I mean, in terms of England's bowlers, um, yeah, okay. Um, John Snow was still around, uh, but but sort of very much coming towards the end of his career. Um, Tony Gregg was around, and then a sort of a bit of a sort of revolving door of of an England seam attack. None of whom had the blistering pace of anything that the West Indies were showing. So, um, whilst the West Indies were posting these enormous totals, they also had the the firepower in order to be able to defend them. Against you know players who are familiar with the with the home conditions or the home wickets um, and enjoying themselves in the summer like everybody else. Yeah, obviously you mentioned the wickets, and um, I just wanted to really quote from uh, England batsman David Steele at the time. Um, he said he tried. I tried to wear everybody down. Uh, that's why I was all about. They were ve- they were very difficult to wear down. Obviously, the first two tests were draws, with the second test obviously being rain affected. But in terms of those tests, was it? Was it simply a case of England kind of hanging on? I remember seeing clips of especially a Brian Close kind of evading a ball from Michael Holding, which would have uh, aid, um, which probably would have hit his face. Um, and then with no helmets at the time would have been quite catastrophic. At the, the especially those first two test matches, was it a simply was it a simpler case of right? They they're looking to kind of hang in there and hang in there and get and get the draw, or was it? Um... Of- yeah, I mean, I I think certainly in 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 the first uh, in the first test, you know, England uh, West Indies posted a big total, almost got five hundred. England did reasonably well in response, sort of mid three three thirties, and then it was a you know just ran that game just sort of ran out of time. Second test, um, second test was different, and I'll talk about that in a second. The the incident that you mentioned of. Um, Brian Close evading short ball. That was actually Old Trafford, um, which is the third test, when he was batting for a while one evening with John Edrich. And, um, I mean, these were guys uh, right at the end of their careers. They were, I think Edrich was 38 or something. Um, Brian Close was well into his 40s. Um, No helmets. Um, I have to say that that is... I think live. I, I remember watching that live. That that was probably some of the most terrifying cricket I'd ever watched because, um, you know, that he could have been killed several times in one over. To be honest, and uh, I think even though you were watching absolute theatre, the the risk assessment man inside me was thinking this can go wrong very quickly here, and you know there is no escape from a cricket ball going that fast when it's aimed at your head. So. Um, th- that aside, um, coming back to the second test, which, which, as you, as you rightly say, you know, was was a draw. Um, um, Viv Richards wasn't fit for that. Now, that that was that had a that was more catastrophic for me um, than had he been fit, simply because I actually went to that test match. I went to the Friday of that test match. It was. Um, the the first time I'd ever been to Lords, um, and obviously you wanted to see Viv Richards. He just got two hundred in the last game. You wanted to see him again, didn't you? So um, uh, he wasn't playing. Um, I remember sitting in um, what would now be sort of Compton and Edrich stand at the end of the ground that has the big um, media centre. 
sink quite high up. Actually, went on a school trip with um, our cricket teacher. Who's actually, you know, it was a good cricketer. Played for Glamorgan himself. A guy called um, Bob Dudley Jones took us. Um, he took fifteen of us, fifteen-year-old kids, to that game. Fourteen or fifteen on the bus um, up to London. You know, navigated us through London. Took us to Lords, sat with us all day, and took us back on the bus. On not just no, not him driving the bus on the national coach. So, um, and I remember obviously, you know, there was lots going on that day. There was me kind of just understanding Lords and just having my breath taken away by the view, you know, of the pavilion, thinking, my goodness, you know, I want to spend a lot of time here. This is where I think I should be watching cricket all the time, um, and and also watching. Um, the th- the thing that I remember most about that that was watching Michael Holding start his run up from underneath where we were sitting. Pretty much, I mean, I think that somebody said about him, "I I don't go as far as that on my holidays." I mean, he just seemed to be coming in from miles away. Um, and of course, he was um he was new to the scene. I don't I'm pretty sure I don't think he played at um I don't think he played at Trent Bridge actually, but um. He was, um, it, that was astonishing, right? J- just watching um, someone like him playing. And he was this, I mean, I think he, in some ways in that series, he had a greater impact on me than Viv Richards because I'd never seen such an athletic looking cricketer before. He was this tall, lithe, not an ounce of anything excess on him. It just, the way he didn't seem to walk, it just seemed to glide over the surface. And that was the way that he, bold as well and i i can honestly say in all of my years watching cricket i have never seen a smoother bowling action and one where uh and you see lots of modern actions particularly whether there's this real kind of build up to the wicket and then there's this sort of almost this coil and then this sort of release but there's this break in momentum if you watch the video of him if you ever watched him live the whole thing was just one smooth movement from the moment that he kind of pushed off his runoff his run up so the time he actually delivered the ball, it was just one, almost one continuous smooth movement. I'm I, I still in awe of that to this day. Um, so that was the really big impact that had on me. And it wasn't, I mean, it wasn't, it was a pretty kind of turgid draw, actually, in the end. Nobody kind of really hit the headlines in that game. I remember Brian Close sort of justified his recall to the England side, Um with with sixty, um, Gordon Greenwich got a good eighty. You know, I mean, we knew what he could do because he'd been playing for Hampshire for a long time at that point. Uh, as we did, we knew what Andy Roberts could do as well. He played for Leicester and Hampshire at that point. So you know, we kind of knew some of that stuff. Roy Fredericks got a hundred in the second innings, um, which obviously is a Glamorgan fan. You know, you you felt Roy Fredericks was one of your own, so that that was good. Um, but there was nothing really. Um, nothing really to imagine what was going to come next. And I think in terms of this series, it what it really changed, the real sea change was in the third test when it, when we all trooped up to Old Trafford. Um, and, um, you know, that wasn't a particularly auspicious start for the West Indies. Um, Gordon Greenwich got 100, you know, but it was 100 in a pretty low scoring total. He got 134 out of 211. So, you know, he... Not many people got got it got in beside of him, and I remember someone making their debut for England. Mike Selvey um, got four wickets by by sort of bowling 
sort of typical archetypal county seamer, if you like, just put it on the spot and let the ball do a little bit. Got got four wickets, and so you know England got him out for two hundred. I thought, right, we're we've uh, you know we're we're in with a chance here, uh, only to be skittled out for seventy one. Um, Michael Holding got five wickets. Then uh, West Indies went into bat again. Uh, Richard's got a hundred, so he'd already got a double ton. Now he got a ton. He obviously was feeling better than he did, or, or whatever was ailing him for the second test. He got over that, um, uh, and yeah, that was it. Um, uh, and I think, yeah, I'm pretty sure that that Gordon Greenwich got a hundred as well. Actually, got a hundred in both innings. So, um, and that was it. And then when England went into bat again, that's when we had that sort of quite. In settling sites, really, of of a guy who's probably old enough to be a granddad at that stage, you know, literally diving out of the way of, of the ball, you know, which would have taken his head off. I mean, we are talking about, I think, holding, you know, probably would have been the fastest bowler in the world by that stage, I would have thought, probably well into the 90s. Um and the equipment in those days, there were no helmets, I think. And and that was accentuated by the fact, of course, Brian Close had a bald head. So, I mean, he looked even more exposed than than he might have otherwise. Um, you know, this was the age of wearing towels and little thin bits of foam around your body to protect yourself. So there was no protection, really. And it was it was unsettling to watch because it wasn't a contest. It was so it was so one sided that that element or that phase of the game. And the umpires clearly were unsettled by that as well, because there was, you know, there's there's the old footage of the sort of finger wagging um, of the umpires, which they were clearly uncomfortable about as well. Um, so, you know, it, but but that sort of revved up the whole series, um, uh, and that's where that's where it, it kind of changed really, and we we realised that um, the West Indies were were better than we were, I think, very clearly, probably better in all departments of the game. Um, and sort of so it continued, really. And my word, Brian Close did well to avoid quite a nasty accident there. And was really fired in extremely quickly. Only at the last possible minute did he manage to get that head out of the way. Yeah, and obviously uh, in that Old Trafford test, the third test match uh, of the series, West Indies won by um, 425 runs. But um, in the fourth test match, England made a couple of changes um, with the likes of Bob Willis and Alan Ward coming into the side. I just wanted to get a better idea of, do you reckon that was that was them being influenced by the West Indies having this potent seam attack? Or was it simply because it was at Headingley? Is it, was it more to do with the kind of conditions um, that were that were served up at the ground? Um, well, obviously, in those days, I think much less now. Headingley was always seen as a little bit of a bit of a lottery. Um, it, it was seen as a sort of um, put them in kind of a wicket. If you won the toss, you put the other team in. And of course, um, the previous year, um, the um, semi-final of the World Cup between England and Australia had become a very, I mean, quite an exciting match, but very low scoring. Both sides in a in a one-day international getting less than 100 and Australia only just getting over the line. A guy called Gary Gilmore got, well, I mean, the most clear-cut man of the match performance ever. He, he got six for 14 and made 28 not out out of a total of about 90. So um, he was always going to get man of the match, but it was a very low-scoring match. And, you know, it, it, it was quite famous in those days for... 
the ball used to do an awful lot. So you pick you picked your, as I say, archetypal English seamers who just put it on a spot, um, and, and it the ball would do the rest. But I think, you know, probably in England at that time, um, Bob Willis and Alan Ward were probably, I would imagine, if they weren't the fastest bowlers, they would definitely would be in the top three or four. Um, Bob Willis, of course, had already kind of played for England. He'd, he'd actually gone on the as a, as a rookie on the Ashes tour of 70-71 as a real young kid. Um, so he was a bit more of a known quantity. Alan Ward um, was a bit more enigmatic. And I think that that would be the word that everybody would use about Alan Ward. I think when he was firing, he was probably the fastest bowler in England. I mean, he's a, he, he had a very long run-up, a very um, slightly sort of arms and legs kind of action. But you know, he was known to generate a lot of pace, but was seen as a bit sort of um, a bit hit or miss, bit bit you know could run hot or cold. Uh, was also spent a lot of his career injured, um, but I think yeah, that was a pretty clear. I would I would read from at the time and from this distance, um, I would say you know England were thinking well you know we we got to fight fire with fire here. Um, We'll, we'll go for our fastest pace attack. So so they would have had an opening attack of Bob Willis and John Snow, although John Snow would be, you know, coming towards the end of his career for sure. Uh, and then sort of backup um, would be Alan Ward, um, who was a bit bit of a sort of perhaps a third seamer that you'd, you'd bowl in very short spells. And then you had kind of Bob, Bob um, uh, Tony Gregg himself, who, who was just sort of at that stage reinventing himself into a sort of you know he could he could sort of bowl most things he was some days he'd bowl seam other times he'd bowl this sort of really off spin with the most enormous run peter willie who went on to be an umpire of course he was playing in that game as well as was bob wilmer who became you know a very famous coach and he was a you know he would be i suppose you'd describe him as a very military medium seam bowler but but someone that you know despite the hot weather, if there was anything going to happen at the wicket at Headingley, then um, Bob Wilmer would be the kind of bowler that would get something out of it, I guess. Yeah, and unfortunately, even though England made those changes, they still uh, lost by this time a close by 55 uh, runs. But just moving in, um, moving on, sorry, to the uh, final test, and it, it it almost felt like England have kind of run out of steam. West Indies put on 687 in the first innings with Viv Richards, that man again getting um 291 but I wanted to talk about the bowlers obviously you've mentioned um Michael Holding who picked up 14 wickets in that match um but obviously someone that we haven't really mentioned is Andy Roberts um what was that what, what was that kind of bowling partnership like at the time uh in comparison to let's say uh Lillian Thompson who who had performed so brilliantly before what was that what was that partnership like um as a as a bowling partnership at the time well I I think temperamentally they were both fairly similar in as much as, and I think this is the case with so many great West Indian players of the past. They don't, I suppose the best example of this would be Malcolm Marshall, who is still one of my most favourite cricketers. Um, they didn't say much because they didn't have to. Um, they didn't waste any time sledging batsmen, particularly because they didn't have to. You know, they, they were terrifying batsmen anyway without, anything that they could have said so they were they were quite um they were quite placid people they they didn't obviously look to get too excited a lot of the time um 
which is in direct contrast, wasn't it, with with Thompson? Lily, you were both sort of brash, outspoken, plenty to say. You know, um, clearly um, capable of kind of you know raising uh, their tempers on the pitch as well. That that never struck me was the West Indies way, really, because it didn't have to be. But as as bowlers, they were quite um, quite different because Holding obviously built his momentum over this enormous run up with this beautiful action um that had this really smooth kind of momentum through it as I, as I say Andy Roberts had a much much shorter run um and he accelerated quite markedly to the wicket and he had a much more of a kind of slingy action than Michael Holding but produced this real skid and of course England batsmen already scared of of Andy Roberts because they played him before whereas I think Holding was brand new to them so there was there was that um there was that difference between them and and you know one was was more skiddy than the other but i think the other thing that you've got to remember um about that attack and you you touched upon this with your opening comments was that you know this was a battery of fast bowlers this this wasn't just two and then you could see them off and then you're down to the sort of you know the the, the pace drops there wasn't any let up in this attack because um, you could argue that Van Bernholder didn't have the pace of the other guys and, and Van Bernholder went on to become an international umpire. You, you, you might have, might know that. Um, but he played for many years for Worcestershire. So even though he didn't quite have the pace of um, the, the others, uh, um, he had the guile. He understood how to operate in English conditions. Uh, he he was a very tall guy. Um, he had the bounce. He knew that how to bowl a length, and he was just awkward. He was just an awkward bowler to face, I would imagine. And the other fourth member, just when you think that you you might have seen off the other three, was Wayne Daniel, who I think probably in spells, short spells, was probably the fastest of the four of them in short spells. Um, he, he was um, he was all body. His action. He was quite ungainly. Um, bustling up to the wicket and it obviously put all of his back and limbs into that delivery but I mean he, I reckon he could be on his day absolutely terrifying I would imagine yeah and obviously that that concluded the series West Indies won 3-0 um, but obviously it's a, it was a fantastic achievement to beat England 3-0 um, away um, but from there they won eight consecutive home test matches in 1976 to 1986 and also won 27 test matches consecutively between 1982 and 1984. After the series, was it expected that this West Indies team could do such such high achievements like that? Was it, Were they expected to be one of the best teams that the world's ever seen? Well, I I probably only give you a personal perspective on that. I I thought, and I think in the piece of mine that I wrote um, a few years ago about that, I still think, having watched a lot of cricket, and let's not forget that was whatever it was, 47 years ago, um, I don't think I've seen a better cricket team. I definitely haven't seen one that excited me as much as they did. I haven't seen one that just made you smile when you watched them play. Um, that just had this absolute confidence in themselves. Um, I suppose even as an England fan, and I think lots of England fans would have would have got some degree of satisfaction to see Tony Gregg's words sort of ram down his throat. Um, 
because if it was done with that style that it was done, then that that just made a wonderful summer. Um, so I think, I think you know that was a really purple patch for the West Indies. Clearly, you know they went on to dominate world cricket for quite a while, didn't they? Um, they they won the next World Cup um, in England, um, where they beat England in the final, of course. Um, many of the same players were there, and if anything, you know when what we saw in that 1976 series Viv Richards hasn't hadn't quite reached his peak at that stage he was just still building up to it wasn't he so um but I think I think having hit upon that as a winning token they did then have this steady steady succession of really good quality very fast bowlers um you know you think of the ones that came afterwards Patrick Patterson you know Colin Croft uh I think I mentioned you know my favorite or I, or I think in terms of skill was the most skillful of all of those Malcolm Marshall um th- they were just relentless you know one would retire another one would come along and bolstering this sort of never-ending stream of brilliant stroke makers in the top order I suppose the thing that they never really seemed to to have the West Indies was a really a really good spinner um but the reason that they didn't have one, they didn't need one, did they? You know, they were they were beating everybody without bowling spin. Um, so I suppose they were almost a complete cricket side. Um, they were definitely the most exciting. And I think what made it particularly memorable was was um not just the brand of cricket that they played, um, not just the way that they did it and and you know the sheer weight of numbers, but it was against this scorching backdrop played out on these sort of brown burnished grounds um and and just at that sort of pivotal moment in your life for me anyway where I used to have summers off because I was in school and I could actually watch all of these games live and I didn't I don't think I missed a ball for the whole series and of course I you know I was lucky enough to go to Lords for that for that test match that one day or the Friday of the Lords test and and I did say, right, I'm coming back here. And um, and I did. And I was really pleased because the following year, it was 1977, um, my team, Glamorgan, got to the Gillette Cup final, although we got, you know, we got blown away by Middlesex in the final. We, uh, you know, it's another opportunity to go to Lords. And um, not long after that, I was put on the MCC waiting list, the membership waiting list by... Um, an uncle of mine who was who's a member and and there I languished for 24 years until I became an associate member and then a full member I became a full member in 2005 um, and my first appearance as a full member at Lords was um, in in the morning of of the Lords test when England played Australia in that amazing series in 2005 which I'm sure if you're doing a series about iconic test series that may feature somewhere along the line. But uh, so I suppose I have connections with both of those series. Um, But, and yes, and, and, you know, I think because of that first trip I'd made to Lords uh, and I remember sort of alighting from the staircase and looking at that pavilion and literally having my breath taken away. uh, And that was the beginning of this, you know, wonderful relationship I have with Lords and I go every year and I'm going, I'm going next week. So I'm kind of already getting excited about that. So, um, so yeah, that, that's it. 
This series really was the start of a period of domination from the West Indies. From 1976 to 1986, they won eight consecutive home test match series and also won 27 test matches consecutively between 1982 and 1984. After losing their first series of the 1980s away in New Zealand, the West Indies went through the rest of the decade undefeated. As for England, all was not as bad as it seemed. For the rest of the 1970s, they picked up some good results, such as series victories over New Zealand and Pakistan in 1978, however falling short against arch-rivals Australia down under in the 1979-1980 series. Thanks to Richard for his insights into this episode. Next time I'll be discussing the 1981 Ashes series. Thank you very much for listening to another episode of Iconic Test Series.